If you take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. It's page 980 in the Pew Bibles. Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 12 in a moment. And we're going to read through the beginning of verse uh, 18. Um, many of your Bibles will have a paragraph break right in the middle of the verse. We're going to stop with a paragraph break. Uh, this is a section in the letter of Paul. It's sort of beginning the body of the letter. He, he opened with the typical greeting and then with a prayer. And then la- now he's starting with the, the true body of the letter. And the Philippian church knows that Paul's in prison. And so I want you to imagine just for a second that you'd heard that one of our missionaries had been uh, imprisoned uh, in their country. And we knew about it and had been praying for them. Uh, and we got a letter from that missionary. Wouldn't it be interesting to open it up and see the first thing they say about their condition, about life in the prison and, and how they're doing there? Well, the first thing that Paul says when he says in prison and how I'm doing is the gospel's going out. And that is the picture of how he's doing. He cares more about uh, where the gospel goes than about his own freedom. And we want to learn how that happens. How does someone get to where they enjoy Christ's name being proclaimed more than their own personal comforts? For in that would be real joy that cannot be extinguished. Before we uh, read the, the word of God, let's pray and ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, we want your word to nourish us. Jesus taught us that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. If that is true, and it is, would you feed us, nourish us in our souls, fill us to the point of satisfaction with your word? Would you teach us to hunger and thirst for righteousness and be satisfied by Christ, whom is revealed in these words, and help us to see him and delight in him? We pray for your blessing upon the time we spend in your word, for Christ's sake. Amen. Philippians 1, verse 12. This is God's word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. This is God's word. It's completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. You may have looked in the bulletin and seen uh, please don't throw me in that briar patch to tile the sermon. And for the great many of you, you will recognize that as a quote from one of the Br'er Rabbit stories. Now, on the outside chance that a few of our kids haven't heard that story, uh, let me just recount a little portion of it quickly. And uh, I'm not the world's greatest storyteller. I'm not the, probably the best uh, preacher using a Br'er Rabbit story today in this town. But, kids, listen. Br'er Rabbit was uh, a sassy, clever, smart aleck of a rabbit. And he got on the nerves of some of the other brer animals, particularly brer fox. 
Br'er Fox planned to catch Br'er Rabbit and wanted to find him and kill him. So, Br'er Fox got a clever idea. He found some tar and put some turpentine with it and shaped the tar into the shape of a baby and put a hat on it. Well, when Br'er Rabbit was coming by, he saw the tar baby and looked at him and never met him before, so he says, Good morning. Nice weather we're having. And tipped his cap. And of course, the tar baby said nothing. So Br'er Rabbit tried again. How are you this fine morning? Still no response. And at this, Br'er Rabbit began to get frustrated. I asked, how are you? And of course, the tar baby said nothing. Well, his frustration began to grow. And he says, are you deaf or just rude? And he began to say, I'm gonna, if you don't tip your cap to me and say hello, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And then Br'er Rabbit ran back and punched the tar baby. But he stuck his hand deep in the tar and couldn't get it free. He says, if you don't let go of my hand, I'm going to punch you again. And so Br'er Rabbit punched him again. And his hand was stuck on the other side. Both paws stuck in the tar baby. So, you know, he's a rabbit. I'm going to kick you something fierce. And he kicks and his feet are stuck in the tar baby. And finally he headbutts the tar baby and finds himself completely stuck. And laughing, laughing, laughing comes out Br'er Fox. Oh, rabbit, I've got you now. He takes the rabbit and he says, I'm going to roast you and eat you. And he says, no, that'll take too much time. I'm just going to hang you. Rare rabbit, thinking, says, all right, bear fox, you do it. Please, please, you roast me and eat me or you hang me. But whatever you do, don't throw me in that briar patch. Rare fox says, well, if I'm going to hang you, i got to have some rope. So that sounds like too much work, but the stream's just right over there. I could drown you. Oh, Br'er Fox, you can roast me and eat me, or you can hang me, or you can drown me in the creek. I don't mind. Just whatever you do, don't throw me in that briar patch. And Well, the fox, of course, says, you know, if I toss him in that briar patch, he's going to get all torn to pieces. That might be a better lesson than anything. So Br'er Fox decided it's easier than anything, tosses Br'er Rabbit into the into the briar patch. And as the rabbit's falling, he's screaming and the fox is taking a great deal of pleasure at it. And then he hears a thud. And he hears this wailing. And as he listens closer, he realizes it wasn't wailing. It was Br'er Rabbit laughing, laughing. Oh, Br'er Fox, don't you know I was raised in the briar patch? This is my home. And you threw me right where I want to be. Now, Br'er Rabbit outsmarted Br'er Fox. And what I want you to see is that, is that Paul is telling you that God is outsmarting the world on every turn. And that for Paul, putting him in prison was a little bit like throwing Br'er Rabbit into the briar patch. Paul did not mind being in prison. In fact, he knew that if he got in prison, all it would mean was I get a new audience for the gospel that I couldn't have gotten to any other way. And that's precisely what happens. When anyone tries to do something against the gospel, what they do simply advances the gospel. And more than that, Paul says this, whatever anyone tries to do against him personally, and the same thing would be true of you, whatever someone tries to do against you to hurt you, all it will ever do is serve Christ's purposes. That's the two things that Paul wants you to see. What is done against the gospel will only cause the gospel to advance. And whatever is done against you 
will only cause Christ's purposes to advance with you. Let's look. First, whatever's done against the gospel just advances the gospel. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Do you hear what he's saying? They took me and put me in prison as a way to silence me. But all it has done, really, is to cause the gospel to go out. He gives you two ways it's gone on further. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my uh, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard uh, are Roman soldiers who were particularly uh, headquartered type soldiers. These were the ones who were at the central locations of the empire. They would be scattered throughout different cities. So this might be when Paul is in Rome with the imperial guard at the palace. It might be when he's in another major city where there's a, a governor's office and imperial guard there. Either way... What is going on with Paul in his prison is that he's allowed to have visitors. He's allowed to write letters. He's given some freedoms. But the way they kept track of these prisoners that had some measure of freedom was uh, every four hours they would be chained to one of the imperial guard. Chained and, and have to stay side by side for four hours. And then a new guard would come in. And they would be on that rotation every four hours. And so every four hours, here'd come someone who'd be chained to the Apostle Paul. And Paul would start talking to them about their life, about their needs, about their heart, and about a Savior. And before long, it was spreading throughout the entire imperial guard, at least in his city, this, this message of Christ. Now, it doesn't say, I want to be careful, Paul is not saying the whole imperial guard have become Christians. But they're hearing about Christ, which is his calling. His calling wasn't to make sure everyone believed. He was not able to do that. His calling was to preach Jesus. And it's all that he wanted to do. And so here was this rotating audience coming in for four hours, sitting with the greatest evangelist that was alive. A captive audience. Only they thought he was the captive. And you got to remember... That in in Philippi, in this church that he's writing to, there was a, a jailer who was ready to fall on his own sword when the prisoners were freed by an earthquake because he had let them go. Paul said, we haven't run away yet. And he talked to this jailer about Jesus. The jailer believed in Christ. And you know, when he hears that Paul is chained to the imperial guard, his response is, man, they have no chance. They're going to hear the gospel. And there was no way that Paul was going to be able to get the gospel to this group of people unless he was imprisoned. And so the very thing that the Roman Empire tried to do to shut Paul down became a place for him to spread the gospel even further. And what's more is it's not just the imperial guard. It says, and to all the rest. Doesn't, we don't know who all the rest are. Is it all the Roman officials who are in that uh, palace where the imperial guard work? Apparently, there's a whole group of people to whom he now has access. The higher ups, the elites, that he couldn't have gotten to in any other way but his imprisonment. And so, the very thing that was done to shut the gospel down became the place for it to spread even further. And that is precisely 
what happens when someone tries to quiet the gospel. It happens on every page of church history. The persecutions we've read about in Acts in the first few chapters. In Acts 6, we see that, uh, or Acts 7, we see that Stephen is, is uh, stoned to death and executed. And as a result, this persecution breaks out against Christians in Jerusalem. And the Christians run from the persecution. They, they flee Jerusalem trying to avoid it. But everywhere they go, to all these cities in the Roman Empire that they go, they start talking about Jesus and these little churches start popping up. And so the persecution that came against them to shut them down caused the gospel to spread. One of my favorite stories, I have told it at least three or four times here, is of the two English reformers, Hugh Latimer and uh, his friend, last name was Ridley. And they were tied to a stake and they were being burned to death because of their commitment to the gospel and unwillingness uh, to uh, recant their faith in justification alone and the scriptures alone and what Christ has accomplished for us. And because they wouldn't recant, they were going to be burnt at the stake. And Hugh Latimer said to his friend, Master Ridley, be of good cheer. For today, we light a candle that in England shall never be put out. Now think about the courage it takes to say that as they bring the firebrands to the kindling that's at your feet. We'll be the wick, but the candle's never going out. The very thing meant to shut the gospel up became the light that shines to all. And it wasn't just for the unbelievers who are beginning to hear the gospel who might not otherwise have been exposed to it. It was also among the believers. Look what it says. Verse 14, And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The Christians who saw what Paul was going through said they might put us in prison. They put him in prison. But we see in Paul we could do that. The, one of the famous stories from American missionaries is that of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott uh, and his team went to establish relationships with the Aka Indians. And uh, the Aka Indians, upon, we don't know the details of how this happened, but the Aka Indians ended up murdering every one of Jim Elliott's tribe, or his, his uh, team that were down there. I think four or five men died because they had gone to take the gospel to these natives in South America, in Ecuador. The Aka Indians were next approached by missionaries that were the wives and children of the men they murdered. Elizabeth Elliot and her daughter and uh, the other wives from these men went back to the same ones who had murdered their husbands and went to learn their language and write it down and give them the gospel. And many of those Aka Indians were converted to Jesus. As you hear that story, part of you says, that is so beautiful. It inspires us. It gives us confidence. That's what Paul was saying. They've seen my imprisonment. They've seen my afflictions and my suffering. And yet they see the Lord at work anyway. 
And so it gives me confidence that God might work through me. I want you to hear that God works in those unexpected moments. That God works in moments of weakness. That Paul was brought to a point where it seemed, humanly speaking, he had no more voice. And yet his voice grew louder. The church that was watching this said, if God can accomplish that in his circumstance, what can he do in mine? I am sure he can do great things. And it's God who is the source of ministry. Francis Schaeffer once said that ministry isn't difficult, it's impossible. But God does the impossible. And that means it doesn't really depend chiefly on your skill or your eloquence. It depends on the Spirit of God who is at work. And the Spirit of God is free to use every circumstance in your life. It means you have power and calling to minister to one another, to minister to your community. And God works through all of that. It's your confidence that God is carrying out this ministry no matter what. I remember once in seminary of being particularly frustrated and depressed about the ministry and about where I was going and just having a, a generally grumpy day and thinking maybe this wasn't my right calling and I was tired of the academics of seminary. And I was at work and I had a chance to listen online to a sermon that was being preached and the person who was preaching it had a stuttering problem. Don't you try to imagine that. Here was a guy whose chief weakness was his speech impediment. And God had called him to a ministry where he would put that impediment on display week after week after week. And upon hearing this sermon, which was ironically about not complaining, I said to myself, you know, God uses weakness. I have hope. You have hope. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And whatever is done against the gospel, it's going to keep going. Whatever happens, the church's ministry is still going to accomplish what God intended for it to accomplish. And there is not one force, not in heaven or on earth, that can stand against it. And that's precisely what Jesus meant when he said that, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell are, are gates to keep people out. They're defensive. And the church has weapons. Because God is at work in you to, to, to trample those gates and to claim those for whom Christ died. To cause them to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. You have resources from the Spirit of God to make you able to minister to one another. It's what Christ is doing. And it's not the, you know, the clergy we're talking about here. It's just a bunch of men and women in the church who saw Paul and said, man, if God is going to put him in prison in order to see the... If God's going to put him in prison in order to see the gospel go to whoever, will he not use us? The second thing that happens is that you see whatever is done against us serves Christ's purposes too. Verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, 
knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul says, I've gotten into prison and I've heard some of these people who are going out and boldly preaching Jesus and it makes my heart glad. They love me and know that God is at work and they are with me in spirit and so they are fulfilling out there what I cannot do out there anymore. And I'm so thankful. But there are others who have a different motive. They look at Paul and say, he's been so popular, I want to be popular like him. I have envy. He has a following and people trust him and I want people to follow me and trust me. And so... I know I can't compete with him when he's out here, but he's in prison. Now's my chance. As they begin preaching Christ and calling people to trust their preaching and they want to build for themselves uh, uh, numbers and and people and it it inflates their ego. That's what Paul's saying. It's not people who are preaching something besides Jesus. It's not folks who are teaching things that are wrong. When Paul comes across those... He denounces them. In Galatians, he says there are people who are preaching to you, but they're preaching something that's another gospel and it's cursed. Don't believe them. Uh, With Corinthians, he knows there are people who are teaching error and self-promotion. And he says, don't believe them. These are preaching the true gospel about Christ, but their motives are wrong. The reason they're doing it, or at least part of the reason they're preaching, is that they want to make a name for themselves. And they want a following so they can feel good about themselves. And they see their chance to steal some of Paul's kind of faithful disciples while he's in prison. They want to add to his affliction. Their envy and their rivalry makes them want Paul to see it happening. As if they were to say, hey Paul, I got a few more of your people today. Paul says that the hurt is real. They were adding to his afflictions. The way he responds, what then? What am I supposed to do about this? It does hurt. It does hurt to see these people who have such animosity toward him. And what's more is to recognize that this hurt comes from other believers. These people are preaching Jesus. They're preaching the gospel that Paul preaches and yet they're doing it to wound him. Paul wants you to know that the stuff that gets done against you sometimes will come from a world. In the last few weeks, we have talked about a, a brother in Christ who is in a basement in Afghanistan hiding from his family because if they find him, they will kill him. We've heard, uh, and I've mentioned stories about Iraqi and Syrian Christians who are literally fleeing into mountains and to wilderness areas because if they don't, They will be executed by Islamic militants. It's all over the world. There are persecutors out to get against the church. But Paul says there might be times when it's the people in the church who hurt you. The church is full of people who need rescuing, who are sinful. And we end up hurting each other sometimes because our sin comes out. I like to think that everybody has some sharp edges. And occasionally we're going to bump across those sharp edges. Paul sees it here. It's the churchmen who are hurting him. The hurt is real, but Paul says it's not ultimate. What then, verse 18, 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Yes, they're doing it to hurt me, but they are preaching Jesus. And so I can rejoice in that. I'm not rejoicing in the hurt they're causing me. I'm not rejoicing in their motives. I'm not rejoicing in being imprisoned and enslaved. I'm rejoicing in that the imperial guard hears the gospel. I'm rejoicing at who these others are. They hear the gospel of Christ. I'm not rejoicing at those who are trying to wound me. But I'm rejoicing that people are hearing about Jesus. How does Paul get there? Except that Paul says, that's what I want more than anything else. I want people to hear about Christ. And that's happening. And so this prison cell, this, this being chained to a guard in the Roman Empire, doesn't take away my joy. It can't. Because people hear about Jesus. And the people who want to hurt me, that hurt that I feel, which is real, can't take away my joy. Because people are hearing about Jesus. And that's what I want more than anything else. And... Uh, I've, I've got a friend, uh, I mention him all the time, Ricky Jones, who uh, says uh, in this passage uh, that what happens when your heart starts to want the things that God's doing in the world is that you start to enjoy these things that, that can't ever be taken away. God is going to cause people to, to keep preaching about Jesus. And if that's what sets your heart on fire, your heart's always going to be on fire and nothing can quench it. He told a, a pretty good illustration. Ricky went to Vanderbilt and was a huge football fan. And that is a painful combination, to be a huge football fan and an alum of Vanderbilt. And he said, and so I spent every Saturday uh, disappointed until I realized I, I could like somebody else. And so at the time, this was coming to a revelation. He said, I'm going to start liking Florida. And every Saturday was a great day. What if you set your heart on the things that God says I'm going to do? What if your heart was set on the kingdom of God advancing? Nothing could quench your joy. What if your heart was set on knowing Christ? Nothing could quench your joy. What if your heart was set on eternal life and walking with Jesus forever and enjoying his love toward you? Nothing could quench that joy. If your heart is set on having a good reputation and people always speaking well of you, one mistake and it's all gone. If your joy is set on wealth and comfortable lives, one economic disaster and it's all gone. If your heart is set on being good and feeling good about yourself, one moral failure and it's all gone. But if your heart is set on Jesus and what he's doing in the world, then there is confidence that's going to flow from heaven itself into your life so that you can minister to people because God is advancing his gospel. And if your heart is set on that gospel going out and people hearing about Jesus and knowing him, and if your heart is set on you knowing him, you're going to have a joy that can never be put out. In uh, 1994, a theologian named uh, Frank Thielman, uh, or not, not Frank Thielman, sorry, uh, a theologian named uh, Thomas Oden. This is quoted by Frank Tillman in a commentary on Philippians. Uh, Thomas Oden wrote an article for Christianity Today after spending some time with some Methodist churches in Cuba. And he said, 
he went over five years after the Berlin Wall fell and he had uh, gone to see what had happened to the Methodist Church. And at the early parts of Fidel Castro's uh, reign in Cuba, the, the Methodist Church had shrunk to 6,000 people. When he got there, a few years after the Berlin Wall fell, there were 50,000 Methodist members. Nothing short of spiritual revolution reminiscent of Acts 2, said Odin, had taken place. Despite the personal cost of everything, because they were active in a Methodist church, they weren't allowed to pursue a university education. They were threatened with long prison terms. The Christians had remained faithful and the church had grown. One of the members of the church said this, the search for meaning is just as crucial as the search for bread. While the economy around us is falling apart, Christians are living in a state of special grace. It is not difficult for Cubans to see the difference between the people of God and those who are desperately trying to live without faith. Ordinary Cubans are becoming aware of the church as a life-saving community of hope. Now, that's the kind of church I want to be. The, the one that says we are so caught up on Jesus that even if we didn't have bread, people say, but I still see hope. That's what Paul found in prison. And that's what the gospel brings to you. A joy that can't be quenched by anything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the enemies of the gospel in Paul's day, the enemies of the gospel in Cuba, the enemies of the gospel in Syria and Iraq, the enemies of the gospel here would be pleased to take away the joy of those who know Christ. But that can't be done because you are stronger than the world and because your promises are yes and amen in Christ and because our joy will not be located in the circumstances of life or even in life itself, but in knowing Christ and seeing him known. Grant us the wisdom and the self-control to find our joy in Jesus, who is ours forever, and we are his. We pray in his name. Amen.